Now, once again, uh, welcome back to the Centerpoint uh, School of Theology. Uh, I was uh, FaceTiming uh, Sinclair, Dr. Ferguson, just uh, half an hour ago or so. Uh, it was, uh, you know, 11 o'clock at night in Scotland. He was wearing a very thick polo neck sweater, complaining about how cold it was. <laughs> and. Uh, throwing some of his books on the fire to keep warm. <laughs> and um, I said to him, you know, I think, I think it was almost 80 degrees here today. And, I, and then regretted saying that. It was kind of mean on my part. <laughs> uh, next Wednesday, just a reminder, uh, we'll meet 15 minutes early uh, at 6.15 next week. Uh, and on your table you'll see uh, the... John L. Gerardo uh, lectures uh, with Erskine Seminary and Thibiti. Uh, Anna Willy uh, will be here giving two lectures next uh, Wednesday evening, a very special uh, event. And I, I urge you, uh, loyal Center Point School of Theology attenders, uh, to, to come along next uh, Wednesday evening. Now, uh, we've had a snow event, and I'm actually combining a couple of things this evening under the rubric of uh, the obedience and sacrifice of Christ. Uh, two weeks ago, you'll remember, hope you remember, uh, we were talking about the sufferings of Christ. We're trying to build a, a platform here uh, from basic and general ideas and concepts in the scriptures to ones that are much more specific. And uh, in a couple of weeks we, we will get very specific when we start speaking about substitution as a way of understanding uh, the cross. But uh, two weeks ago we were thinking of the sufferings of Jesus, the physical sufferings of Jesus, the emotional and psychological sufferings uh, of Jesus and the social suffering uh, of Jesus. And we uh, were drawing from various uh, things that are said about uh, Christ, particularly in the Gospels. And we were making the point uh, that if you simply viewed the crucifixion of Jesus, you would not see immediately redemption or reconciliation or propitiation, uh, all you would see was a man dying in fairly excruciating circumstances. Those, those things need to be interpreted. Uh, so watching a movie, for example, of the crucifixion of Jesus does not in itself convey that this is an act of substitution. Uh, what you are seeing is, is the first platform in trying to understand uh, what it is that Jesus was doing. Uh, and and uh, we, we are going to move on uh, in the coming weeks to some especially of Paul's uh, words uh, and John's words and Peter's words explaining the cross to us from a theological point of view. We ended uh, two weeks ago uh, with the cry of dereliction uh, on the cross, uh, 
citing as Jesus was the 22nd Psalm, an exposition of which, a wonderful exposition of which we heard from Dr. Davis uh, just a couple of Sunday evenings uh, ago. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that, not simply because Jesus is, as, as we do sometimes when we find ourselves in trouble, we, we cite a passage of Scripture, and, and Jesus is certainly citing a passage of Scripture. But I think citing that passage of Scripture as the most appropriate Scripture in the context in which he found himself as the suffering servant of the Lord citing a passage that's, that's not simply asking a question, why have you forsaken me, um, but asking a question in the context of an awareness and a consciousness that he has had that he is the Messiah, that he is the anointed of the Lord. And a question that is asked not in terms of my father, my father, but my God, my God, suggesting that his assurance of his identity as the Son of God has altogether been obliterated by the circumstances in which he now finds himself in and an awareness that he is a forsaken one. Now the question that begs to be answered, of course, is why would the father treat his son in this way? The the answer to which Jesus did not hear, at least vocally, from his heavenly father, there was no interjection as there was at the time of the baptism or the transfiguration. You are my son and I love you. There There were no comforting words from the father. To all intents and purposes... Jesus is a cursed individual at that moment. Now, we have to open that up and and explain that a little further, and and that's coming uh, in a few weeks' time. But tonight I want us to continue looking at the cross uh, again uh, from what I might call a general perspective. And the first and perhaps the most important category in which to understand uh, the work of Christ upon the cross is this category of obedience. That what Jesus was doing on our behalf was an act of obedience. Now there's an epitomizing text here uh, that I've chosen and that's Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And and this text is interesting from a a whole slew of perspectives. I'm, I'm simply narrowing my focus this evening to this word obedience, disobedience, obedience. It's talking, of course, in the context of Romans 5 of the parallel between Adam and Christ. Christ is the last Adam. He has come to undo that which Adam had done. Namely, he had plunged the entire human race into sin. 
by one man's disobedience, the many were made, reckoned, if you like, in a legal and forensic way, first of all. All of humanity was in Adam. And by Adam's disobedience, all of humanity are reckoned sinners. But then on the other side, by one man's obedience. It's an interesting term, isn't it? By one man's obedience. Paul is thinking of a way of summarizing everything that Jesus has done for us. And he summarizes it using this idea of obedience. Now there's some discussion as to where Paul might have been getting this idea and concept of obedience. Jesus as the obedient one from Uh, And there have been suggestions of uh, the servant uh, idea, Uh, and those of you who are Sunday evening uh, attenders here at First uh, Presbyterian Church uh, will have heard the recent uh, series of expositions on the servant songs, beginning in Isaiah 42 and ending in Isaiah 53. Uh, Behold my servant whom I uphold, uh, the first servant song says, Jesus is a servant, and what does a servant do? I mean, what use is a servant if he doesn't obey? Uh, He's there to do your bidding. He's there to do your will. He's there to serve you, to work and labor for you. Uh, And and again, uh, alluding back to something we did in the fall when we were looking at the Philippians uh, song of Jesus, Let This Mind Be In You, which was also in... Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, a form of a servant. He was in the form of God, and now in addition, he takes the form of a servant. So, some have thought that Paul is uh, alluding to the servant songs. Uh, Others... uh, others, uh, see here a direct allusion to the administration uh, with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And that's, of course, the context of Romans 5. It is Adam and Christ, Adam and the last Adam. And Adam, Adam's contribution is summarized by the word disobedience. And in theological, at least systematic theological categories, Adam failed the covenant of works. Adam was given if we think of a covenant as, as uh, 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 a relationship, a binding relationship uh, with blessings and, uh, and responsibilities, if we take that very loose, minimalist definition of a covenant, uh, Adam was told in the Garden of Eden, uh, do this and live. Under the gospel, we are told to live and do this in that order, gospel first and obedience second. But in, in, in the Garden of Eden, Adam was told to obey, to obey the one command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and, and evil. And as a consequence of his disobedience, his failure, the whole of humanity was plunged uh, into, uh, into sin. Adam failed the covenant of works. Jesus, in this language of obedience, you can think of it in terms of Jesus fulfilling the covenant of works. 
So one of the ways in which you can think of what did Jesus come to do is to say Jesus came to fulfill the covenant of works that Adam failed to fulfill. Uh, Others have gone even deeper uh, because Jesus came into the world as an act of obedience uh, in, in the counsels of eternity. And one thinks, for example, of the Father sending the Son and the consciousness of Jesus being the one who has been sent by the Father and therefore alluding to uh, an agreement to obey uh, in eternity. And uh, sometimes we call this the covenant of redemption. Now, uh, I will skip over the allusion here to the doctrine of the Trinity, and uh, you've, you've memorized that formula, opera ad extra trinitatis indivisa sunt, uh, that the external operations of God cannot be divided. In other words, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in, uh, in the work of redemption. And when we think of Jesus as, as one who obeys, he is obeying whom? He is obeying the Father. Uh, so the Father is involved as much as the Son is involved. We think of the work of Christ, but that work of Christ is a work that's done in relationship to one who has sent him. He is obeying the Father. Uh, And all of that uh, is suggestive of something a a little deeper, if you like, that the death of Jesus is covenantal. Uh, obeying the covenant of works, obeying an eternal covenant before the creation of the world, the Father and the Son agree to redeem sinful humanity. Uh, so you can think of the death of Jesus as, as covenantal. Jesus viewed his work as covenantal. Uh, in the upper room, uh, the sign and seal uh, of, of his work, if you like, is This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And that uh, that sign and seal is a a token uh, for all of time for the body of Christ of, of Jesus' work as covenantal, as fulfilling the terms of a covenant or a or a slightly more, more risky term, a contract, if you like, between uh, the Father and the Son. Or think of, uh, think of Paul's words in Galatians 4. Uh, God, uh, Galatians 4.4, 4, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, made under the law. Now, last fall we looked at that Uh, verse from the perspective of the words born of a woman and and we said at the time that's a little that's that's a kind of dur statement of course he was born of a woman how else would he be born Um, so why is Paul saying born of a woman It, it would sound just as peculiar in Greek or in the Hebraic mindset as it does here in English and and the reason is not because Paul is referring tangentially to the virgin birth so much as referring, I think, to Genesis 3.15. He is the seed of the woman. 
He is the fulfillment of the promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. But then he goes on to say, born under the law. From the moment of his birth, actually from the moment of his conception, but certainly from the moment of his birth, he is under the law. He is under the law's direction. He is under the law's authority. He he has come to fulfill the law. He has come to do the law. He has come to obey the law. And you could trace the life of Jesus from childhood through to teenage years and into adulthood as one of obedience to every facet of the law, every facet of the Torah. He was without sin. He never violated any law, any principle, any direction of Torah, including, of course, taking upon himself the curse of a broken law, because, because his death is viewed in terms of one who cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is suggestive of the fact that at the point of the cross, he is considered to be a, a cursed one. Why would he be considered a cursed one unless he also takes upon himself the curse of violated, broken law? Now, that doesn't explain everything as to why he does that or why the Father reckons him to be in that position. Substitution is, is the key that will get us to there. Um, but at this point in Galatians 4.4, 4, uh, Paul is thinking of the work of Jesus as, as obedience to the law. He is, he is born under the law. Now, theologians have uh, expanded on this a little more, and they've spoken of the active and passive obedience of Christ. Now, let me say two things here. First of all, I agree with the concept of active and passive obedience. And let me say, secondly, I think that the term passive obedience is one I wish we could get rid of without getting rid of the concept. Now, hear me correctly, because... You want anybody criticizing my adherence to the Westminster standards or anything of the, of the kind? I just think that passive is, a, is an unfortunate word. It's one of these words that's been handed down for 300 years or more, and it's become something of a shibboleth. Uh, I, I agree with the concept of it, but the word passive is somewhat, is somewhat unfortunate. Let me explain why. First of all, let's talk about the active obedience of Jesus. And, and by active obedience... We mean the obedience of Jesus throughout the whole course of his life. When, when in, the, in, in the common Christie passage in Philippians 2, he took the form of a servant, became obedient unto death, even death upon a cross, the, the Greek is suggestive, he became obedient right up to the point of death. That the death wasn't the act of obedience, it was a part of his obedience, it was a climactic part of his obedience, but he was obedient all the way up to the cross. So throughout his life, he was obedient. The active obedience of Jesus to every facet of the law. But he was also obedient to the law's curse. 
Now, why would he be obedient to the law's curse is another question that needs more information to answer. But he was obedient to the law's curse, and the curse of the law, of the broken law, is death. The soul that sins shall die. You know, that's the greatest question that you can ever ask. And I know preachers say stuff like that, and they say it about lots of things. But I actually mean it about this. Why did Jesus die? If Jesus is sinless, if he is without sin, why does he die? Now, now one answer is that there's no justice in the universe. You can live a perfect life and you can still die. You know, suck it up. We live in a malevolent universe. Even, even God is unpredictable. That's, that's one possibility. Or you can say at the point at which Jesus dies, it is precisely what he deserves. To maintain the integrity of the justice of God... You have to say that at the point Jesus dies, it is exactly what he deserves. Now, why if he's sinless? Again, only substitution right, will get you to that point. Now, the term that theologians have used historically to define uh, that aspect of Jesus taking the curse upon himself, his, his death, if you like, is the passive obedience of Jesus. It's unfortunate because Jesus wasn't passive in his death. What did he say? No man can take it from me. I, I give it of my own volition. I give it of myself. At his dying words, into, into your hands, Father, into your hands. And, and you notice he's come out of the darkness of my God, my God, into the light of Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He, he gave up the ghost. He was active in his death. He wasn't passive. He wasn't just letting go. He gave his life as a ransom for many. So... It's active, active rather than active, passive. Right? I agree with the concept that lies behind the passive obedience of Jesus. I just think that word passive is somewhat unfortunate. Now notice also that Jesus acted uh, under clear commands from his Father, and especially in John. Uh, and I have a whole slew of references, none of which I'm going to chase after uh, this evening. But there are state, all of these statements say in one form or another, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. That, that Jesus is self-aware that he is under authority, that, he's, that he is under a command uh, to obey. Or the language uh, of, be, of being the sent one. And in John 17:4, in the high priestly prayer, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. That's why he had come. He had come to do the work of the Father. That the Father had given 
to him. I think that's how we should understand uh, the cry in John 19, uh, it is finished, uh, tetelestai. How many of you used that word that week? I told you in one s- Sunday you were to use that word in, a, in an email, in a tweet or something. It, it is finished. The whole gospel, the whole gospel lies in, in, in that, well it's one word in Greek, it's three words in English. It is finished, it is done. It is accomplished. It is fulfilled. It's not, Tedelesta is not, oh, it's over. You know, thank goodness it's over. It's everything that was demanded of me has been done in full and to the letter. That's what it means. So Jesus' death, we, we view the death of Jesus as the climax of a lifetime of obedience. Now let's turn to a second concept uh, under number two, the sacrifice. Uh, and, and both of these ideas, the idea of obedience and the idea of sacrifice are general, all-encompassing ideas. They're not, they're not narrow and specific like redemption or reconciliation or propitiation, uh, which, we, which we need to look at. Those are all three important New Testament with Old Testament roots, um, I, ideas and concepts. But these are, these are broad, general categories. Obedience and sacrifice. Now, there's no tension between these two. Uh, He offered himself without blemish to God. It was an act of obedience on his part, but it was also an act of sacrifice on his part. Now, what's the evidence that the death of Jesus was a sacrifice? Well, let's go right to the very beginning of his ministry and the words of John the Baptist uh, at the Jordan Uh, River, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The reference to the Lamb of God is a reference in Hebraic thought, of course, to the language of sacrifice. Lambs were sacrificed. And this is not John saying that Jesus is like a cuddly little lamb, but that he is a lamb of sacrifice. Now, what in particular is John alluding to? And and there are several possible ideas here. He he could be alluding to the Abraham-Isaac passage, God providing a lamb uh, caught in the thicket as, as, as a substitute for Isaac. He is that lamb of the Abraham-Isaac passage. That's a possibility. Or John might be alluding here to the Passover and the ritual of the lambs that were slain and the blood sprinkled on the doorposts and lintels of the, of the house and, and the allusion to the angel of the Lord, the angel of, of, of God's God's holiness passing over that house where the blood of the lamb was seen. Again, the idea is a sacrifice. This is a lamb of sacrifice. Or uh, it may be an allusion to the fourth servant song uh, in Isaiah 53, 7, uh, as a lamb led to the slaughter. So which is it? And I think the answer to that is yes. 
that it's an allusion to all three of those, uh, that, that motif that runs through the Old Testament of a lamb that is sacrificed. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, interesting to note that John uses the singular for sin, not the sins considered atomistically, but sin considered as an entity, and that the work of Jesus is a sacrifice that in some way or other is related to the sin of the world. Now, how is it related to sin is something that we have to unfold, uh, and you have to be patient with me, uh, unfold over the coming weeks. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, uh, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Uh, and our, our software is having trouble with the Greek fonts here again. But uh, Pascha in, in, in Greek, uh, uh, Christ is our Paschal, uh, Paschal Lamb, Passover Lamb, the Lamb of Passover. Now, I am aware, and, and if we had time, and if you had the interest, uh, we could now go on a rabbit trail of historical theological discussion uh, that is somewhat old and, and contemporary as to whether the Passover was an act of sacrifice because the lamb uh, wasn't offered on the altar. Uh, these, these lambs were slain on, and the blood was sprinkled on, per, on personal domiciles, on, on personal homes. It wasn't a, a sacrifice on the altar. But the point, I think, the point is uh, that the Passover lamb was killed and redemption and therefore protection came through the death and bloodshedding of that lamb. That's the concept, I think, that Paul has in mind. And Paul is saying this in a very particular context, of course, in 1 Corinthians 5. But, but, but Christ, our Passover, is slain uh, for us. Or Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice, different Greek word here, sacrifice to God. A couple of things to notice here as we, as we think about this. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The primary direction of this sacrifice, right, in Paul's mind here, is to God. Right, it is not manward, but Godward. Right, the, the primary direction is not Jesus sacrificing himself for us, that's true, but the primary direction in Paul's mind here is that Christ is being sacrificed to God. There is something about God, about his heavenly Father. There is something about God's nature, about God's holiness, about God's character. There is something about God that requires sacrifice in order for our sins to be forgiven. You know, there are views of the work of Jesus that suggest something like you know, Jesus is giving us a wonderful example of self-sacrifice. You know, uh, it's very difficult to understand this. Jesus is 
is, is allowing himself, on this view, he's allowing himself to be killed. It's like somebody throwing himself over the cliff in order to say, I love you. I love you, so here's my demonstration of it, and I'm going to throw myself now over the cliff. I did, it, on any level, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So Paul isn't thinking of it here in terms of self-sacrifice to, to move us to acts of self-sacrifice. You know, we ought to be self-sacrificial. And all of that is true. And, and sometimes the New Testament does use the death of Jesus in, in that way. Philippians 2 is an example of that. But here in Ephesians 5, Paul is thinking of the sacrifice of Jesus not simply to move us to acts of self-sacrifice, but he's thinking of the sacrifice of, of, of Jesus as necessary because of something in the very being and character of God. He sacrificed himself to God. Sin cannot be forgiven unless this sacrifice to God takes place. Now, of course, that violates people's ideas of God. And, and uh, you can almost hear it coming that that's a kind of an Old Testament view of God as angry and needs to be appeased, except that this is Ephesians 5.2. Uh, and, and so here is, Paul, here is Paul saying there is something in the being and character of God that requires sacrifice, bloodshedding, and death in order for our sins to be forgiven. Right? We, we're going to have to explore that a little more, a whole lot more, in the coming weeks. But notice here the category of sacrifice. And, and we could go on unfolding some of these texts, First uh, Peter 1.18. Um, oh, let me go back up. I missed something uh, under, under 3.2 there. Two sacrificial words. In, uh, in English, that is, uh, a generic term, oblation, and, and then a more, a, more, uh, a more specific term, a bloody oblation. Uh, now, uh, this is only of interest to those who are perhaps uh, Anglicans and, and raised in the Episcopal Church, and you remember the prayer book, and you remember some of Cranmer's prayers that speak of the death of Jesus as an act of oblation. Uh, and perhaps you've, you remember using that word, but it wasn't quite clear what the word actually meant. Uh, and it's a, it's a generic term that, that the death of Jesus is, is, is dealing in a generic way with sin. That's what the, the term oblation uh, means. It's just a general term. First uh, Peter 1, 18 through 21, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, whatever that means, whether Paul is, is speaking here in general or specific ways, uh, when he speaks of the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. And, and again, the idea behind Peter's words is the idea of a lamb of sacrifice, that, that we are redeemed, a very specific term, that we are redeemed not with silver and gold, but with the blood of a lamb, the sacrificial blood of a lamb. 
And then the references in Revelation, uh, and, and perhaps especially uh, Revelation 5-6, which is one of those uh, mind-numbing uh, pictures that John portrays. He portrays the throne uh, room of heaven, and there is someone sitting on the throne room of heaven. And who is it who is sitting on the throne room of heaven? And the answer is, Aslan! The lion, but actually it's not. It's a lamb with its throat cut. A lamb as though it had been slain. Right? That's counterintuitive, isn't it? Who, who's sitting on the throne? Who's, who's the one with his, uh, with his finger on the pulse, on the, on the button? Who's, who's got the red telephone in his hand? Who's controlling everything? You'd understand if John said it's a lion, but actually he says it's a lamb with its throat cut. It's a lamb of sacrifice. You see the anomaly? That the one governing and upholding the entire universe is none other than this lamb with its throat cut. And it's a, it's a, it's a mind-exploding picture when you allow yourself to think about it a little more. So what does all this mean? And let's, uh, let me go down to point C here, the category of sacrifice. What does all this mean? If we think of Jesus' death, his, his work, if you like, as an act of sacrifice, what, what does that mean? Well, first of all, when the New Testament is doing this, what is it doing? It's giving you a tool by which to understand the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the Levitical sacrifices of the Old Testament. Now, uh, in, in, in my younger days as a young minister, I decided that what the congregation needed was a very lengthy exposition of the book of Leviticus, and I began in verse 1 of chapter 1 and worked all the way to the end, and it's tough going. Uh, week after week, especially since I did it on a Sunday morning, which was not the brightest idea, um, but, but I, went through, I went through it, and, and I remember collectively as a congregation, all of us experiencing this sense of revulsion. You know, I've only been to a slaughterhouse one time. I grew up on a farm. We had, we, we, we had, we had lambs and, and, and calves and, and pigs, and, and, and these weren't pets. I mean, these were meant for the dinner table. We weren't vegetarians. We, we were meat eaters. And uh, these four-legged little creatures were destined for the table. My mother had a rule. You never gave any creature that was destined for the table a name. Because once it had a name, it had personality, and we couldn't... We, we, could, we had a duck that lived for 12 years. Uh, he actually was a she, but, but we thought it was a he. Uh, was destined for, for our Christmas table, but he was named Charlie. <laughs> And he survived to good old age just because the children had decided to give it the name Charlie. Now, I went to the slaughterhouse just one time. I won't describe it to you now. You've had your dinner and I won't describe it to you. It, was, it, was, it wasn't pretty. I can still remember the scene in my head as I think about it. And I was maybe 13 or 14 years old. It's a long time ago. I've never been back. I'm still a meat eater. 
but I like my meat, you know, in cellophane. And uh, when, I, when, I, when I tilt it, I don't want to see a lot of blood running down. Right? I, 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 I like that. I, I think this is a sophisticated age in which we live, and I'm glad somebody does that for me. Um, but when you walk through Leviticus and you think of yourself, how, how difficult was it to worship under the Old Testament? You know, all we do is put on some smart clothes and come to church. And some of us don't put on smart clothes. We just come to church. And that's fine. We come to a building and we, and we, and we, and we sing and we pray and we listen and we talk and fellowship. And, and we have great coffee and, and, and biscuits and, and, and so on. That's church. Imagine going to the, to the, to the temple. And seeing all this blood everywhere, and uh, Passover, uh, there's a description uh, in, the, in the first century by a historian who's given to exaggeration for sure, of an entire uh, river of blood coming out from the temple and going down into the valley uh, beyond as, as perhaps, perhaps tens or maybe even hundreds of thousands of lambs are being sacrificed all in one day. Uh, and I, I would, it would turn our stomach, but... The New Testament is saying, here's a category by which to understand the work of Jesus. He he is the fulfillment of those Levitical sacrifices. Those Levitical sacrifices can be read typologically as, as, as illustrations of and anticipations of the one sacrifice of Jesus. So this word sacrifice is is a kind of key, well let me use a big word here, a hermeneutical key. It's a key that enables you to read the Old Testament. I mean why, why else would you ever read Leviticus? You know, Gandhi, was it Gandhi who started reading uh, the Bible and stopped in the book of Leviticus? Am I correct about that? I may be wrong about that. But I, I'm going to stick with Gandhi. That's my memory of it. Gandhi was the one who, who began reading the, the Old Testament and stopped halfway through the book of Leviticus. I may be wrong about that. I'll, I'll check it up. Came off the top of my point, in my head. Uh, secondly, the death of Jesus was by divine appointment. You know, if, if you see the death of Jesus as a fulfillment of legislation that God had laid down in the Old Testament for forgiveness and atonement, then the death of Jesus, if Jesus is the fulfillment of that Old Testament legislation, the death of Jesus too is by divine appointment. It, there's nothing... There's nothing serendipitous or haphazard about the death of Jesus. This is God's way. It raises that question, and it should raise that question. Why is this God's way? And what kind of God requires blood-shedding death to forgive sin. I mean, how hard is it for God to forgive sin? Right? If God can do anything, can't he just forgive sin? I mean, can't he just will it into being? 
This not only gives us a handle to understand the work of Jesus, it gives us a handle to understand the sinfulness of sin. But sin, sin is no trivial thing. It's no light thing. If it requires by divine appointment an act of obedience on the part of Jesus to sacrifice, to bloodshedding. Now, all, all we've done tonight is, is speak in generic terms. How is Jesus' death a sacrifice? And the answer to that lies along specific words and concepts and ideas that the rest of the New Testament especially will focus on to explain what it is that Jesus has come to do. And that's what we're going to look at in uh, the coming weeks. A reminder that next week we'll have uh, the Erskine Seminary Lectures with Thaviti and Mbwili, and then two weeks from now we'll look at one of the most Actually, one of the most um, controversial ideas in the church today, uh, and that is the idea of substitution, that he died in my place and in my room. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for his obedience. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his willingness to become obedient right up to the point of death, to deal with our sin and our sinfulness and our sin nature. So right upon our hearts tonight as, uh, as we think about these things, not only the sinfulness of our sin, but also the beauty and greatness of our Savior. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.